Welcome to BSD Talk number 228. It's Thursday, July 11, 2013. What happened to June? I skipped that month. Sorry, I was finishing up a degree and also out of the country for a little bit, so please forgive me about that. Here is another interview from BSD Can 2013. Well, we're here once again with Michael Lucas, and I guess another year, another BSD Can. And for you, not only a uh, talk that you've been given, but some new things coming out uh, in the form of books. So that's, I guess, a few things to cover. So why don't we start with um, the heavy book that I now uh, have in my possession, which is the new OpenBSD book. What is this thing that you've done? What this thing that I have done is, uh, is given a whole bunch of people back strain. A lot of people really liked the first edition of Absolute OpenBSD, so I decided a few years back that I should update it to, to make it relevant again. And, of course, as happens any time I announce a plan, life immediately intervened to make this really, really complicated. Uh, so I had hoped to have this book out about 2010, so here we are in 2013, and the book is out. Mm-hmm. I've had a chance to evaluate its weight and size, but that's it. You know, haven't you know since yesterday. Um, but from I guess I would say a, a quick thumb through, uh, it seems quite comprehensive. It it's comprehensive enough. There are topics I dropped from my original outline because of the book's weight and size. If I had really covered everything in OpenBSD, the book would be four times as big, it wouldn't be out until 2025, and it would be obsolete. Yeah, looking at their six-month release schedule, every six months something new comes along. Yes. This is basically the largest an OpenBSD book can be while still being correct. Because it, it takes a certain amount of time not just to print the book, but fact-check the book. And we have... Uh, I, I had some really good help fact-checking it. Uh, Henning Brower and Peter Hanstein did technical reviews on the book as I was writing it and as we edited it. And even so, there are sections that I know inside of a year uh, will probably probably be obsoleted. But there's nothing I can do about that. And the OpenBSD folks are not going to turn around and say, oh, the book exists. We must conform to the book at all times. Uh, that, that is just not how they work. I think, if, if anything, a, a book about an operating system helps legitimize the operating system a little bit. In that, uh, you know, now you can go to a bookstore and find something on it. On the other side of the coin, it helps lock it in history. Or, you know, like this is a snapshot of what OpenBSD was today. And so years from now, uh, 
you know, you might say the book is obsolete, but I think it's also a nice way of saying, you know, where was OpenBSD in, in 2013? And it's almost a history project, too. Uh, in a way, I had a certain amount of amusement looking through the first edition. I wanted to use it. Initially, I thought I would use the first edition as an outline. And to some extent, I did. Uh, that extent being chapter titles. I like to think I've become a much better writer in the last 10 years because the writing in the first edition was painful. The organization was horrid. And this is stuff that none of the readers actually cared about, as far as I can tell. It worked well enough for them. So as, as a piece of history, as a, a marker of this is where we were, it, yes, it's certainly useful. And people have put the two books side by side as a comparison. And in some ways, OpenBSD has come quite a long way. And in other ways, certain things just haven't changed at all. They were good enough then configuring classes of users. That really hasn't changed. Some of the values have changed. You can easily assign a user to use a gig of RAM without restriction these days on a lot of hardware, whereas in 2003, that would have required some serious consideration. So this book, I guess, given its release date, you were probably working in the OpenBSD 5.2, I mean, 5.3 just came out, but that's roughly the, where we are in this book. Yes, the book targets 5.3. I was really only able to do that because of Henning, who... He's not just a, a PF developer. He has his ear to the ground on the inner OpenBSD circles, which mostly means things like hackathons, where the OpenBSD guys get together. Uh, they code all day and drink beer all night. Really, if you want to know what is about to happen, you have to get invited to one of these things, which are pretty much only open to OpenBSD developers, and talk to them. So my usual method of trawling the developer mailing list looking for hints is really not useful with the OpenBSD folks. And along with this book, I think over the past year and a half, you've been pretty prolific in what you've been publishing. In a number of books ways, yes. One of the things that really needs to be covered for an OpenBSD book is OpenSSH. And the OpenBSD book was already getting pretty heavy. And I realized I could take the OpenSSH material, extract that, and have it be self-contained and useful, not just for OpenBSD, but for everyone. Yeah, it really is the most pervasive SSH system out there. Uh, about 98% of all SSH implementations are OpenSSH. Some portion of the others, I suspect, are OpenSSH relabeled or, or somehow obfuscated. This, this is actually really worrisome because anytime you have any piece of software owning that much of a market or that much of, of the ecosystem, a single flaw could affect an awful lot of people really quickly. But Yes, OpenSSH is everywhere, and there are a lot of people who treat it as a replacement for Telnet. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I took the information, I bundled it up in a book called SSH Mastery, and released that myself. Was that through the Tilted Windmill Press? Yes, yes. That's my, uh, that is the business name for my self-publishing operation. And the Absolute Open BSD book that was published through? That's No Starch. No Starch, yeah. And also there was a third book recently, and you gave a talk here at BSD Can on this subject area, which was DNSSEC. DNSSEC, yes. Uh, last month, I had, at the same time Absolute Open BSD came out, my new self-published book, DNSSEC Mastery, came out. So it looks like I released two books in the same month. The DNSSEC book was written entirely after OpenBSD was finished. It's just a much smaller book and thus had a much shorter turnaround time. DNSSEC is actually kind of interesting in that it, it's earned a bad reputation over the last 10 years. It was only finalized in, in 2006, I think. But it, it's gone through various permutations since 1999. And many of those earned a bad reputation for being really hard to do, really complex, and really hard to understand. Yeah, for me, with OpenSSH, I feel like I would be silly not to use it. Yes. Meanwhile, DNSSEC, I feel scared to use it. Yes. And... The reputation for many years was very well-deserved. Some of the early designs were appalling. I looked at them, I tried to implement them, I gave up. Because DNS is one of those things, it, it is vital. It's a tiny, tiny service, but if it stops working, everything else around it dies. Today, that has changed. DNSSEC still has the reputation it earned, but now the current design of DNSSEC is much easier to understand. Anybody who has done PGP will think that DNSSEC is actually pretty simple. And if you go looking at, at the software, uh, many of the old how-tos on how to do DNSSEC are not only obsolete, but harmful. They do things the hard way. With the newest release of Bind 9.9, DNSSEC is actually something that normal sysadmins can do. Sysadmins who have other jobs and other things that are what they really need to be working on. And we, we all know that DNS has a, a, a real problem it's gullible. If you tell it something, it, it believes you. And this has caused all kinds of spoofing and enabled phishing and just any number of horrible, horrible things. And this all comes from DNS as a protocol was invented in 1983. And if you think about the internet in 1983, when I got online in, it was either 85 or 86, uh, right around end of semester, fall of 85, DNS was brand new. It had just replaced the host file. And the people on the network 
You had the U.S. military. You had universities. Computers were tens of thousands of dollars. Even the, the most malicious users you had were basically, they'd pull the occasional prank. You had programs like Core Wars as people would fight with each other. But there were no gangsters. There was no banking. There was no, no e-commerce. Nobody imagined that. DNS is fine for that network. Right now, we have mobs on the other side of the world can try to empty your bank account. This is a really different world. And DNSSEC eliminates a whole bunch of problems. And they, they did some things that actually can expand your abilities as a systems administrator. Uh, there, are, there are business cases now to be made for DNSSEC. And there are technology things that can be done with DNSSEC that will help. And it's DNSSEC is now simple enough that here at BSD can in the hacker lounge last night after dinner, after the social event with the free drinks in the room where they brought more beer, uh, freebsd.org was signed and hooked into the global DNSSEC and nobody noticed. I guess really there's two major aspects to DNSSEC because there's the recursive side of it which you know you're not really trying to sign your own zone you just want to provide your customers with the DNS resolver that at least is checking this kind of stuff and I'm guessing that is reasonably easy and straightforward and a little bit more complicated if you're authoritative for a zone and you want to sign that. Yes doing the recursive part of DNSSEC making it so your resolver accepts and validates DNS signatures is actually very, very easy. Uh, you can set that up in five minutes. And it does eliminate things. I have had a couple of occasions at work. We've been doing DNSSEC validation for about a year, and on two occasions we've had a customer contact us because somebody's they, they could not reach something and the target system was running DNSSEC and they had incorrect data that someone had inserted into the authoritative zone to try to misdirect customers so DNSSEC actually prevented some attacks against my users I was stunned. That's good. That's good. So you, you gave a talk, and I think that was recorded. They, they've been recording all the sessions here at BSD CAN? I, it may have been recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they recorded tutorials. Oh, that's right. It was a tutorial. It so. was a tutorial. Yeah. So they got to get the book. you got to <laughs> get the book. The book will let you do things like um, uh, valid SSL certificates without going through a certificate authority. Oh, really? Yes. That is the big thing that DNSSEC gives you. Uh, re remember, DNS is the world's most successful distributed database. 
Now, the, the amount of relational integrity in this database depends on you know, the people at the end, but as a distributed database, it's massively successful. If you can secure that, you can put other stuff in it. Uh, SSH fingerprints. We all know you're supposed to validate fingerprints, but if you put the fingerprint in DNS, OpenSSH will check there. And if you have DNSSEC so you can trust those fingerprints, managing host security with SSH gets a whole lot simpler. Is that a text record or is it a specialized server record? It's an SSHFP record. I've never heard of that one. So You haven't used it because using an SSHFP record without DNSSEC would be stupid. <laughs> you can put the fingerprints for your self-signed SSL certificates in DNSSEC as a TLSA record. Hmm. And support is just now coming into applications uh, Chrome just added support for TLSA in their Bleeding Edge branch. Uh, Chrome had support for an earlier version of SSL certificates through through DNSSEC, but uh, they took that out when the final standard was actually created. Now, does this assume, or does this require that uh, everything be signed all the way up to your top-level domain? Yes. You need to have everything signed to your top-level domain. Uh, the root zone is now signed. Many uh, top-level national domains are signed. Uh, .net, .com, .org, all of those are signed. The missing piece right now for some people is registrars. Some registrars do not support IPv6 name servers, and those same registrars do not support the... DS records that you need for DNSSEC. Uh, registers that are technically competent generally do. Heck, GoDaddy supports DS records and IPv6. If, Do if GoDaddy can do it, all of these other guys should be able to. But, I mean, I used Dotster for 10 years. I was happy with them. They are not keeping up with internet standards, so I've switched over to GKG uh, based on some other recommendations I had, and uh, I've been perfectly happy with that. And are you recommending generally that, at least for authoritative name servers and DNSSEC, that people run bind? Well, there are many options. This book covers bind. The reason I covered BIND is, one, it's the most widely deployed version, and two, because BIND 9.9 .9 takes away the vast majority of the pain around DNSSEC. You can literally go into BIND, generate two keys, add a couple entries to the zone entry in namedy.conf, tell your registrar that you are signed, and you're done. You have DNSSEC. That's it. Uh, a lot of DNSSEC tutorials now talk about you have to go in and renew the signatures. This has to be every 30 days, except if you change something during the time, in which case you renew some signatures now and some in a couple weeks and some only when the moon is full. And no, 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 no. Uh, Bind 9.9 does that for you automatically. doesn't matter if you have 
a dynamic zone. If you have a static zone file, bind 9.9 just does it. What about split horizon? That's fine. Yeah, that works with that too. It, absolutely. Now, my testing, I used very simple split horizon. I have inside and outside. I have heard of a couple cases where people have some a number of horizons in the double digits, in, in the middle double digits where they had trouble. And I would suggest that if you have 50 views on your zone, yes, maybe you'll have some DNSSEC trouble, but you probably need to step back and reassess what you're doing in the first place. All right. Well, if anything, I think you're convincing me I really should uh, take a look because my perspective of DNSSEC, I think, was based on the older painful uh, history. So it's... It, Yes. DNSSEC no longer feels like having your eyebrow pierced. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you do it, you get on with your life. Now, that's from the, you know, the service provider or ISP or whatever level. How about getting it down to the client level? Because like, some of us might be doing stuff on our smartphone. Is there a way ah. that our smartphone could know that we're getting signed DNS? You know, that's a really good question. I don't have a smartphone. I, I know that, well, technically, this BlackBerry 83-something that work gives me for free is, I think they call it a smartphone, <laughs> but uh, by modern standard, it's basically stone knives and bearskin. There are applications that you can use for client-side DNSSEC validation. Uh, the Unbound folk actually have a toolkit that you can use to link into your, your client software that will do DNSSEC validation for you, whether your ISP does or not. And I'm seeing more and more people start to link against this. There are efforts to build browser plugins that will do DNSSEC for you. And it'll show you a nice little green symbol if DNS second is on and valid, and gray, kind of unremarkable if the target page has no DNS sec, because you, you don't want to alarm people when DNS sec is just not there, because that's fairly common. But you get big red screaming things when uh, DNS sec is broken and you're validating it at the client. Yeah, we use uh, a service for content filtering at the school systems where I work, and it actually relies on DNS in order to do the content filtering. So I can imagine that uh, this will really cause, well, some red lights to go on. Now, they know it. You know, a, a student tries to go to Facebook that's been blocked, and DNS points somewhere else. And so it would just be, a, you know, they already know they're blocked anyway. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I don't know how many other... Um, you know, I don't know if you want to call content filtering legitimate uses of, of DNS stuff, but are there any other sort of tricky yet legitimate things that people often do with DNS that won't function anymore thanks to DNSSEC? Well, the short answer is not that I know of. I think some people will have to rethink how they do things. Uh, for example, if you're proxying web content you will 
have to think about where you do validation. The last place where I handled web proxying, the desktop client actually was not allowed access to external DNS at all because they had had people funneling data out running SSH over DNS. So you'll, there you would want to do your DNSSEC validation at the filtering service, at the proxy. The desktop isn't exactly involved as much because you're, you're putting your security trust elsewhere. Now, with a school system, I wouldn't trust the desktop at all. I wouldn't even try to trust the desktop. Uh, the kids are smarter than we are, and they have more time than we do. So I can't see how you could do anything except deploy your trust elsewhere. So I'm sure that somebody has something that will break with DNSSEC. In my experience as a carrier, uh, as a, uh, I'm the IP network architect for a telecommunications provider in Michigan, and we sell to customers who sell to actual people. Uh, I, I don't want to talk to actual you know, end users. Uh, I get cranky, and then they stop buying our service. But in, in that role... Nobody has had any trouble with our validation of DNSSEC. Are there any statistics at this point on, I guess, how far along this process we are of converting everyone? The statistics are it's very small. Mm -hmm. I think now that we have the ability to, one, do DNSSEC without torturing ourselves, and two, there are things to be gained by doing it, not just trusting DNS, but you can put SSL certificates on arbitrary services and you can validate those self-signed certificates, not just internally to your company, but to the outside world. That's a real business case. Being able to manage your SSH host key fingerprints so that when your users see an SSH warning, it's a real warning. It's not something that they've just learned to click, accept the key, and move on. That's a real security benefit. And I think we'll see more of those sorts of things now that DNSSEC is achievable by regular human beings. And for people who are convinced that they need to run out and, and learn more about this, this is available not only as a paper book, I think all of them are, are not only paper, but also electronic. Yes. Yes. Uh, DNSSEC Mastery and Absolute OpenBSD are both paper, Kindle, the Nook. You can get them uh, on PDF through the publisher. Uh, even my self-published books, I have a website where you can buy them direct from me if you like. Uh, but I'm perfectly happy if people go to Amazon or wherever, so long as they get it. Yeah, it's two benefits. One, it's nice to have your book purchased. And two, it's nice to help the Internet become a better place because people are doing it right. That is really why I do this. Uh, I'm sick of people having problems 
because of a protocol that was invented for a different internet. All right, well, thank you for uh, taking some time to talk to us about these books. Uh, I, I definitely have a lot of reading. Unfortunately, I'm driving back, not flying back. So that's eight hours that I don't think I can try and do both at the same time. But uh, I hope I'm able to dive in soon. That's probably wisest. <laughs> All right, thank you. Well, back to the conference. Thank you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.